in addition to performance enhancement with change of direction, an individual who's got better deceleration ability can actually um, reduce the amount of mechanical load that's going to be exposed on the lower limbs during the final foot step or what we refer to as the plant step where we see all these ACL injuries, we see all these, you know, potential lower limb injuries. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. I am absolutely delighted to get Damien Harper on this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Anyone that's read Damien's work knows that deceleration is his thing. It's come up a reasonable amount of times across the last 360 episodes of the podcast, but probably not frequently enough. We had discussions with Lauren Landau, we had discussions with Lee Taft um, on a Sportsmith Live with Evie Casagrande, Damien himself, and Lee Taft again. But it's not come up loads, so I'm delighted to get Damien on to have a little dive into why deceleration is so important, why there's so little research into deceleration, how we can test the, its ability, and what are the under, underpinning qualities of deceleration. So we go into uh, the depths of deceleration, which is exactly what I wanted from this episode. And if you haven't read any of Damien's work, make sure you go to ResearchGate and his Twitter profile and dive into his work because it's superb. There's lots and lots of resources there that Damien provides um, through his research, through his lectures that you can tap into. So highly, highly recommended. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimise return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Damien Harper. Damien Harper, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. Thank you for giving up your time on a Tuesday morning. Thanks very much, Rob. It's an absolute honour to be on the podcast and many congratulations on the rebrand. Oh, thank you very much. It's been, yeah, it's been eight months coming to turn Strength of Science into Sportsmith. So uh, yeah, super excited and Excited to get you on the uh, the podcast. It has been a long time coming. It's been too long, given that you came on the um, on the mastermind a couple of months ago. But thank you for uh, thank you for giving up your time. Anyone who doesn't know who you are, Damien, would you mind just giving us a very brief intro to you and what you're currently doing? Yeah, absolutely, Rob. Um, I suppose if I start from the humble beginnings, really, um, like many interested in sport, uh, when I was at college, I got into gym instructing, personal training. Uh, football coaching 
and spent quite a long, a long time just trying to develop those skills within the public health and fitness sector. Um, so I spent probably about 10 years working part-time um, in that area. And uh, that's where I really developed my first passion for coaching, uh, developed my own soccer skills. And um, uh, at the time, quite a, quite a long time ago now, Rob, uh, worked for Bobby Charlton Soccer School as part of that. Oh, nice. Yeah, so that was, um, you know, some time ago now, but some really, really, you know, key coaching skills that I developed are working with a variety of different, um, you know, different players, different nationalities. And um, yeah, so that's, uh, I was also at that time played at a reasonable standard as well at football. And that's where um, I developed some of my first interest in strength and conditioning because I used to take the first team uh, fitness and and coaching uh, in, in, in the um, Manchester Premier League, which I played in at the time. Uh, so w- once I finished college, uh, I was quite fortunate that I got a, a job with a company who was contracted with the Professional Football Association to deliver education to professional scholars. So uh, for those who, who are not too aware of that, what that involves, it involves going out to uh, professional football clubs and delivering the education to those players who thought they were going to become professional football players. Um, so I spent quite a bit of time doing that and, and part of my initial role within that was to become a tutor assessor, uh, delivering health and fitness qualifications within the Professional Football Association and and, and uh, also uh, BTEC qualifications in sport. Uh, so that was where I, I had uh, two good opportunities which came along with that job. Uh, one, I was able to access the Professional Football Association's degree, where I completed that at Manchester Metropolitan University. And the other thing which came with that was developing some really good contacts within the, the within the clubs that I was working at. So I was able to apply the um, work I was doing as part of my degree in some of those settings. Uh, I really got interested in team sports, uh, speed in team sports when I did my degree, and also uh, really fascinated by the strip short in cycling, how that can enhance human uh, elastic potential uh, and economy of movement. Uh, so uh, as part of my degree, my final project was looking at uh, speed in team sports, particularly football. And I was one of the first to bring over the Vertimax to the UK, uh, where I did a eight-week, I think it was an eight-week training program at Stockport County Football Club, uh, looking at the effects of the Vertimax compared to traditional resistance training on speed in soccer players. Um, so that was pretty cool at the time. Uh, a lot of field-based conditioning there, which we did at Stockport with the Vertimax. Um, and then once I complete my degree, uh, I got a job at a college where I led the uh, sports science and sports coaching degrees, which were in partnership with UCLan. Uh, during that time, I also had the responsibility to develop a new human performance lab. Uh, which was pretty cool at the time because we were given a budget which I had to manage to try and uh, bring in some kits within that 60k budget to to, to cover all aspects of strength, speed and aerobic uh, assessment. Uh, I was supported during during my time at college to complete my master's. Uh, We developed some good partnerships with um, clubs around the area at the time. One of those was St. Helens Rugby League. Uh, and that's where I completed my master's project, looking at the 10 to 5 repeated jump test. And uh, that was part of a speed, strength and power uh, profiling assessment that we did at, at the club at that time. Uh, I also completed my basis accreditation and UKCA accreditation uh, during that time. And then uh, I got a job uh, following that at York St. John University, where I... Uh, was lecturer in exercise physiology and then uh, led the masters in strength and conditioning. And uh, during that time is when I started my PhD and where I was introduced to John Kiley and spent uh, the last six years of my time studying for a PhD looking at uh, deceleration. Uh, I was also supervised by Chris Carling, who's now at the French Football uh, Federation and uh, David Rhodes, who's the course leader of the professional doctorate at UCLan. Uh, so on the back of my PhD, near the back end, uh, I moved to UCLan 
which is where I am now. For the last 12 months, I've been at UCLan, where I work in the Institute of Coaching and Performance, uh, supervising students on professional masters and professional doctorates in elite performance. Uh, I'm also a member of the newly developed Football Performance Hub at UCLan, which sits in the Institute of Coaching and Performance. And that's where I've developed uh, the Human Breaking Performance Research Group recently on the back of my PhD, um, which sits within the Football Performance Hub, but also uh, I see that being applied uh, in, in, in wider contexts, you know, in, in, in other team sports as well, uh, to try and advance understanding of uh, deceleration in team sports and intermittent sports. Nice. So that, that res- what was it, breaking? Yeah, the Breaking Performance Research Group. Breaking performance research group. So that's that's going to be advising on just just football, or is it various different sports? Yeah, in terms of uh, where it sits under the football performance hub at UCLan, that will be obviously yeah. linked to football in, in any research we do, any collaborations we do in that area. But definitely, I see the breaking performance group having a much wider implication in terms of you know sports like uh, American football, basketball. Uh, where there's a high deceleration demand and, and breaking may have a really big uh, impact on performance and injury prevention. Nice. What position did you play when you played, Damien? Uh, I was... Uh, I, see, so I see you as a central midfielder. Yeah, central midfield. Oh, yeah, yeah. midfield. Um, one of the reasons which I think, you know, I had enduring capacities, but certainly... I think one of the things what's interested me in terms of speed is I lacked uh, I lacked top speed and I lacked probably some of those acceleration cap- capabilities, but perhaps made up on it with change of direction. You know, the ability okay. to repeat okay. change of directions. Yeah, so that's probably where I got my interest, uh, particularly in that area. Nice. And the PFA degree, just uh, this is very much a personal and selfish question. Was that the Crew and Alsager campus with the with the sports science degree? It was, Rob, yeah. It was, what year was that? Uh, oof, you're looking at early 2000, I think. Early uh, 2000, okay. Yeah, but that was a distance learning degree. Um, yes. Five and a half years? It was over five years, yeah. 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 So it was great because, again, all my education has been through uh, that kind of means, but then having full-time jobs alongside that. Yeah. So ability to pl- apply what you're doing, what you're, what you're studying because it's part-time in full-time full-time yeah, work. Absolutely. I did that I did that exact same degree in 2012, 2011, 2012. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let's chat well, the bulk of our chat is going to be around deceleration. However, you mentioned the 105 repeated jumps and it kind of fits in because we were talking about the deceleration getting a lot more airtime. A lot more discussion, obviously, and that's what we're going to chat about. But the 10-5 repeated jump test is also probably within that category of something that's getting a little bit of momentum and has come up with, has come up in a conversation with James Baker over aspiring in Qatar. And I think it seems to be popping up a, a lot more places as well. Tell us about what the repeated, sorry, 10-5 repeated jump test is and even why people may go down that route and use it over other, other uh, options. Yeah, well, I mean... The ten, just to give a bit of background in terms of how I came to develop that, uh, it was obviously with the rugby league guys we were working with at the time. I was going to apply that masters project too. It was trying to find a test which could 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 get reactive strength capabilities uh, quickly and uh, reliably. Um, so, just really looking at a lot of the work that was around at that time. Uh, Rodri Lloyd has done some really good work on reactive strength in youth populations and uh, he'd done some repeated jump tests looking at, um, I think it was a five rebound and maybe a, a 10 second rebound, but it was a repeated hop test. And that that really, really, I found that really interesting because it, it was more like what you see in running where there's a repeated stretch shortening cycle um, rather than just an isolated single event. Uh, what I did start to think about at the time then was how we could make that more reliable. And um, that's that coined the idea of get, gaining 10 jumps and then trying to reduce it down to five to try and enhance the reliability. Uh, so, yeah, I think 
It's great gaining momentum now, definitely, because I think of those main reasons that it's quick, time efficient. Uh, athletes seem to just get the test quickly. I think we found that just, I think just one 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 trial was enough to um, to, to to get reasonably good, reliable data uh, back from your athlete. So uh, one just one one practice of the test, your second trial is going to give you pretty good data. And um, I think in terms of how it links to to, to athletic movement, uh, there's certainly perhaps a, a lot of different qualities that that links to in terms of top speed is you know probably one standout there with the short ground contact times, but also uh, just general running economy, you know longer distance running uh, movement. Uh, I'm not too sure how it links. There's no evidence at the minute to how that. Uh, test correlates with more high intensity movements like change of direction and deceleration um, but definitely I think something which uh, now is used by a lot of people because of those 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 you know the, the speed and the the ability to get reliable reactive strength information is that on two legs or is that on one leg uh, I think people have started to apply it to single leg assessments to get asymmetry but Generally, uh, with my experience, it was was using a double leg. Yeah. Cool. Okay, mate, thanks for that. Um, deceleration, let's dive right in. Why is, uh, Priya, uh, a big question, but why is deceleration so important? Why should coaches be worried about deceleration? There's so much hype around speed, acceleration, top speed, but obviously in team sports, without being able to slow down and stop, it's, yeah, probably struggling so why is deceleration so important yeah i think just to give a bit of background rob on that in, in terms of what i'm talking about when we refer to deceleration uh it's it's horizontal deceleration so in in essence what we're looking at is the opposite of horizontal acceleration uh from 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 a from a purely newtonian mechanical definition when we look at horizontal deceleration what we're looking at is how quickly the athlete can reduce their speed with respect to time. So like acceleration has uh, been a sought after capability, we want with deceleration to try and improve the ability of the athlete to reduce their speed as quickly as possible. Um, now that's, that's, that's important from a movement outcome perspective or from a perspective of an athlete's uh, deceleration capacity. What that perhaps doesn't give is the interests of deceleration as a movement skill. And I think that's really important to have to understand that alongside that purely Newtonian mechanical definition that deceleration uh, is a highly complex interaction of the limbs to be able to ensure that the athlete can apply those braking forces effectively uh, and orientate those forces effectively. So when we look at deceleration, uh, or horizontal deceleration ability, what I'm referring to is the ability of the athlete to be able to uh, decelerate um, with regards to the um, intentions of the task, whilst also being able to attenuate and distribute those forces throughout the lower limbs. So in essence, there's two key components when we look at deceleration. One, uh, how well they can control the braking forces. And then the second key component is how well they can attenuate and distribute those forces throughout the lower limbs. So breaking force control and breaking force attenuation are kind of like the two key components that I look at there. Now, when we look at the importance of that in team sports, and particularly, uh, or particularly sports which have that intermittent nature, multi-directional demands, we, we definitely... Um, We've definitely perhaps looked at the acceleration and top speed elements, largely looked at those, perhaps not considered as much the deceleration component and how how that interacts with those uh, components. Um, I think it was perhaps, I think it was Bill Knowles actually who first came up with a mantra that you don't speed up what you can't slow down. In, in essence, that's just, a, that's just a, an interpretation of Newton's laws of motion in that if we improve the speed of the athlete in essence we're increasing their momentum which is their mass times their velocity and 
the higher the momentum, the greater the uh, forces that are needed to be able to reduce that speed. So it becomes really important uh, because if an athlete hasn't got that deceleration ability uh, alongside the acceleration and top speed capabilities, then they're going to take longer time and longer distance to slow down. Um, now, when we go back to that um, saying from Bill Knowles, it perhaps is more accurate to say an athlete will not speed up what they can't slow down. Uh, rather than they don't speed up because there's probably a self-regulatory mechanism there which is uh, the athlete will reduce their speed um, knowing that they've got a deceleration uh, at the end of it so they won't speed up what they can't slow down uh, to try and protect them from um, potential damage potential tissue damage uh, which could occur in deceleration which comes which 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 consumes some of the uh, highest mechanical forces on the lower limbs. Uh, so I think it's um, that's really important, really massive importance for change of direction ability because um, we know that athletes who can decelerate more rapidly uh, can enhance their change of direction ability. So in essence, they can hold off the brakes for longer because they can reduce their speed over shorter distances and times. So they can access a greater percentage of their top speed potential uh, during the change of direction task. Um, so from an from, from a intermittent sport, which has lots and lots of change of directions, you know, that deceleration capacity becomes absolutely critical in terms of enhancing your overall speed potential. Um, and yeah, I think the second big factor there uh, when we look at change of direction, some really great work, which I think has come on the back of Tom DeSantis' work in change of direction, is that in addition to performance enhancement with change of direction, an individual who's got better deceleration ability can actually um, reduce the amount of mechanical load that's going to be exposed on the lower limbs during the final foot step, or what we refer to as the plant step where we see all these ACL injuries, we see all these you know, potential lower limb injuries. So two really important uh, things that I think particularly connected to change of direction performance with, um, with, with, with higher deceleration capacity. That's really, that's, that's super interesting. I mean, it would seem quite intuitive that if you're unable to slow down and, and, and change direction, the, the qualities aren't there to do that effectively you wouldn't the body wouldn't accelerate knowing that that's the case but when you put it like that it, it i suppose it, it enhances the importance of deceleration because it's affecting the whole system rather than just that deceleration point that you, we see and think of the end it actually affecting the start as well yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, the analogy that people will talk about is you wouldn't get in a supercar, which has got amazing top speed capabilities. Um, if you knew that the brakes were worn and not working very well, you just you just would not use, you would not put the accelerator down to its potential because you know that, you know, in, in, in any set distance, you're going to take longer to, to, to be able to brake. The problem we've got there from a, a performance perspective is we, we talk about this, you know, this supercar analogy, but we, 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 we haven't really been able to, I think until recently, been able to get a good indication of an athlete's deceleration capacity. So therefore, we don't know how, how that's interacting with their acceleration and top speed. We, we don't know how good the brakes are as such. Um, Which so, is... Fantastic segue, Damien, into how we can actually test it, and how what's that journey been like for you, and I suppose for others in how we actually um, go about understanding and then coming out with something that is okay. We can use this as a test. Yeah, it's. I mean, one of the problems we've had with advancing deceleration is definitely linked to the difficulty in terms of how we measure that. It's much harder to measure than. Than, than your your acceleration and top speed capabilities, but the the good news is there's definitely I think I can see more more options now available for practitioners to apply on the field, which is great. Um, currently, in terms of measuring deceleration, it's done in two two basically you've got two options. 
want to measure it during a, a change of direction task. Now that change of direction task needs to have, um, I would probably normally recommend uh, something like a five or five test, which requires the athlete in essence to bring their momentum to zero before changing direction. So there's a really big deceleration demand within a five or five test. The, the ones greater than 90 degrees basically where the athlete needs to be able to come uh, uh, to reduce their momentum right down to zero before they, they redirect the momentum or, or they re-accelerate. So the angles generally, you know, less than 60 degrees and no good. We're just looking at maintaining speed. So it's got to be those deceleration related change of direction tasks that we, we look at. Um, and the other option, which is the one that I ended up looking at for my PhD is a horizontal acceleration to deceleration um, in, a, in a linear path. There are, there are two options with that test. Uh, you could get the athlete to stop at a preset distance. So for example, that could be a 20 meter line where the athlete has to sprint and then come to a stop at that 20 meter line. The other option is to get them to decelerate at a preset distance or to commence deceleration at preset distance. So that's what I ended up using for my PhD where the athlete sprints a 20 meter distance and then at that 20 meter mark, they have to put on the brakes and, and try to stop as quickly as possible. Um, and and that's, that test we refer to as the uh, ADA test or the ADA test, acceleration deceleration ability. Now, uh, just summarize the two options there, but when I did my PhD, I probably spent about 12 months, I think, with my hands in my head a lot of the times, just making, you know, discussing ideas about how it can be done before we actually, you know, got to that method uh, and making a lot of mistakes as well and trying out different means of measurement um, to try and capture that deceleration because your next option then is, well, how do we measure? How do we measure the athlete's deceleration during those, those tasks? Um, I think Andreas Leifife will certainly, uh, who used to be one of my colleagues at York St. John, will certainly vouch for that because we spent many hours in, in the coffee shop in, in York discussing these options. Um, and yeah, probably around about 12 months, it took me to get to a point where actually we need to have instantaneous velocity throughout the task. Um, and that's where I, uh, you know, basically just looked at some of the research which had been done in acceleration. Some of the more practical means of measuring using radar or using laser, uh, high-speed video, um, or some of the latest options now using electromotor devices like the 1080 Sprint, um, all which allow you to capture instantaneous velocity during a horizontal axle to decel or a change of direction task. And I think that is probably for me where you get you 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 need those methods to be able to accurately obtain the start of the deceleration phase, which is critical, and to get accurate deceleration measures. Um, and it still it surprises me today that we still only have very few studies uh, that have actually attempted to capture instantaneous velocity during a five or five task. Um, I think there's probably a handful, and, and I think Matt, uh, sorry less than a handful, a couple of studies. I think Martin Boucher was one uh, of the first people who attempted to try and capture instantaneous velocity during a change direction movement. Uh, and he used, I think he used two, two laser guns offset um, during a 45 and 90 degree task uh, to capture um, the first specific information during the change direction. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the, the direct, I refer to them as the direct methods of, of measuring deceleration, uh, but there's also been a, some attempts to try and capture it using indirect methods, uh, such as the change of direction deficit and, and the deceleration deficit, um, but they're only uh, an estimation. Uh, we don't know at the minute whether they actually give you an indication of, a, of, of an athlete's deceleration capacity, which in, in essence is, is deceleration in meters per second squared, you know, how quickly they can change velocity with respect to time. So on the ADA test, Damien, you did 20 meters. Does it have to be 20 meters? Is that the sweet spot that you found? Can it be longer? Can it be shorter depending on, again, making it 
to demands of a, a game potentially or a, a sport. Yeah, that that can that can be amended to to any distance really, um, depending on the demands of that sport. And uh, the twenty meter distance we selected at the time was really just trying to cover um, a dip or selected distance, which allowed the athlete to get near to their maximal velocity. Um, so therefore, we we challenge their deceleration capacity. You know, the greater the speed that they're going to enter the, the deceleration, they're going to approach the deceleration. The greater the deceleration demands are going to be. So what we we tried to do there was was we just ensure that we we captured um, maximal deceleration ability. But yeah, um, I think you, you could you could adapt that absolutely uh, adapt that and. I know Phil Graham Smith has done some work on that as well, um, using uh, a horizontal acceleration to deceleration, and looked at the deceleration across different distances, so five, ten, fifteen, and twenty meters, and look at how that how that differs in terms of the distance it takes athletes to stop. Um, so that's that's the measure of success, Damien. Is the is the measure from that end of twenty meters? until they're actually able to stop. Yeah, so you, you get a number of metrics in that. You, I mean, the main one that I've, I've, I've used now is obviously deceleration itself. Um, average deceleration, so that's, that's taking all the instantaneous velocity measures during that deceleration phase and, and getting an average of their deceleration values. But you can also look at uh, peak deceleration as well, which is just that single value. Um, which I tended to think isn't the best measure of an athlete's deceleration ability because it doesn't really account for the for the entire phase. And there's a there's a possibility that athletes with high peak deceleration maybe um, maybe obtaining them high peak deceleration because they're not able to spread the deceleration across the entire deceleration phase. So therefore, there's there's high high peak values occurring, particularly near the back end of the deceleration. So so what 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 tech do people need to be able to run that test? Yep, so um, I, I used a radar device, the Stalker, Stalker radar, um, but you could also use uh, laser devices, which have a higher sampling frequency. So I believe the Ergo test um, laser speed device now has the adder test built into that software. All so, right, okay. Yeah, so you can now, you, you, you know, you can now run an acceleration deceleration test and obtain a, a number of different metrics connected to the deceleration phase with that software. Uh, but you could also obtain instantaneous velocity with high speed uh, video, such as Dartfish um, or some of the some of the newer devices like Ten Eighty Sprint. No going into the area of trying to get deceleration metrics during change of direction tasks, which I think is a, a really interesting area and potential in that area as well. Some people may think, okay, that's that's great, Damien, but I don't have the budget to be able to buy an ergo test or the 1080 sprint. Is there any other options for people who are on a bit more of a shoestring budget? Yeah, I think this is where now we'd perhaps discuss some of this area. Um connected to the physical qualities that are needed to decelerate. Um, so you could potentially get some indirect indications of a player's deceleration ability by looking at some of those underpinning qualities. Uh, for example, drop jumps, counter-movement jumps. Um, and there seem to be some metrics within those tests that link quite strongly with an athlete's deceleration ability. So perhaps utilizing some of those those tests and some of the specific metrics within them, you could get you could get a rough indication of an, how well an athlete can tolerate or produce those high breaking forces. So in like something like a drop jump, what would people be looking at in terms of metrics? What would they pull out, which potentially links to deceleration? Yeah, so I mean, with with the, with the drop jump, uh, reactive strength index, I think, was proposed as a key physical quality for deceleration. I think back in 2008, I think it was by Mark Kovacs actually. Um, he, did, he did an excellent article, uh, which was 
it was anecdotal, but it was really theoretically driven in terms of what's needed to be able to decelerate. And one of those key physical qualities Mark identified was reactive strength. Now, up until recently, I think one of my PhD studies uh, looked at drop jump reactive strength index and how that uh, associated with a player's maximal deceleration ability. And what was really interesting was we found quite large associations with reactive strength index from either a drop jump 20 or drop jump 40. Um, you could use either, either height to, to get an indication of an athlete's um, deceleration ability. What was even more interesting with that study was when we broke the deceleration phase into an early deceleration and late deceleration phase, which is basically we use a time point associated with 50% Vmax. So how quickly they can reduce their speed uh, to 50% of their maximal velocity is the early deceleration phase. And then the back end, you know, 50% Vmax to zero is the late deceleration phase. What we found was that drop jump reactive strength had a greater association with the early deceleration phase. So those steps during the, uh, during the deceleration phase are associated with shorter ground contact times and really high impact peaks. Um, it's basically when there's perhaps more of a heel strike and uh, when they're in that process of transitioning from top speed uh, to the first couple of steps during the, during the deceleration phase. So that was really interesting because what we found early deceleration, athletes who could decelerate quicker, put the brakes on quicker, could achieve higher deceleration ability across the whole phase. Um, so yeah, greater drop jump reactive strength index, perhaps more uh, important for being able to tolerate those high forces uh, during, the, during the early deceleration phase. And if we link that back to change of direction, we know that athletes who can decelerate earlier within the preparatory deceleration steps have better change of direction ability and they're able to reduce the mechanical loads in that final foot contact. So it's likely linked to that as well. Um, so yeah, uh, drop jump reactive strength, uh, I think has real links to deceleration also because of the the ability to pre-activate prior to ground contact. So similar with deceleration, when we, you know, when we're decelerating, the swing limb prior to ground contact has got to be able to pre-activate, to be able to pre-tension prior to, to hitting the ground. So I think that's where then qualities kind of like link together quite nicely. You mentioned a minute ago, change direction deficit and deceleration deficit. Do they have a place? And if they do, where particularly the deceleration deficit yeah, the, the deceleration deficit um, is a really interesting one. I think it advances beyond that change of direction deficit, particularly from a deceleration point of view, because um, for, for the listeners, the deceleration deficit is obtained from, so you've got to do a linear sprint outside of the change of direction task. You've got to, get, you've got to obtain uh, a 15 meter uh, split time without a deceleration. The other measure you then need is the full approach to the to the change direction. So you need to capture the point time point when the athlete starts the the five or five to when they change direction during during the change direction task. And the deceleration deficit is then calculated from the fifteen meter linear sprint minus their uh, full approach time. Now that that's interesting, and it'd be really interesting to see if that does correlate with deceleration ability. Um, which there isn't anything out there at the minute, but what it is telling us is that those athletes who've got a greater deficit are simply reducing their speed more from their 15 meter linear sprint time. For faster athletes, this is where I think it gets interesting because it doesn't necessarily mean they may not have better change direction ability because a faster athlete who's got higher top speed potential has greater options to be able to reduce their speed prior to the change of direction uh, than somebody who's got a lower top speed potential. So they may need, may need to use a higher percentage of their speed reserve to perform that change of direction task. Mm -hmm. 
So it, it is simply looking at how much speed reduction an athlete is dropping from the from the from the fifteen meter lane sprint time. So you would advise a little bit of caution if people are using that deceleration deficit to try to understand deceleration ability in a more deeper sense. I think from a capacity point of view, a deceleration capacity, which I think is really important, like acceleration capacity, maybe, and, and again, it's got to be looked at alongside the athlete's top speed, and that's where that interaction is really important because an athlete with greater top speed could reduce their, you know, they could be more efficient in the change of direction task as such. They're using, is less costly, the change of direction is less costly for them because they're able to, to drop their speed to a lower percentage. So I think that that's where I think the caution needs to be, that it needs to be looked at in terms of top speed or the 50 meter speed times, um, in addition to, you know, to the change direction performance times. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Damien. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we have a little chat around the strategies we can use to develop a player's deceleration performance, which is obviously everything that all listeners want to know. So that's that's good. That's coming up in part two. Then we have a little chat around areas that we think kind of a particular influence on improving a player's deceleration performance, but overall speed capability as well. So a really, really interesting part two coming up with Damien. This episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast is sponsored by Black Box Fitness. Blackbox Fitness are leaders in performance training equipment and facility design. Blackbox are specialists in designing and building performance facilities for sports teams and strength and conditioning coaches. Blackbox manufacture and distribute a full range of strength training equipment from their headquarters in Belfast right across Europe. If you want to learn more about Blackbox, check out their website blackboxfitness.com or follow them on social media at blackboxfitness. And this episode is also sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. And this episode is also sponsored by Stanta College. Stanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognised qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom, while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa, applications are now open for courses including the BSc in Strength and Conditioning, MSc in Performance Coaching and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. Visit tantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. And now back to the interview with Damien. So we've dived into the testing. Now let's have a little look at strategies to actually improve deceleration performance. Would you be able to give us an insight into what people can do who are listening to work with their athletes tomorrow, the strategies that potentially can improve these qualities? Yeah, so I mean, I've already mentioned about reactive strength as one as one potentially key important physical quality 
Um, the other qualities that Mark Kovacs mentioned at the time was eccentric strength, uh, dynamic balance, and power, which included rate of force development. Now, when we look at those four key qualities there, at the time there was anecdotal, but now we have a much, I think we, we, we're getting a better insight into how important those qualities are, but also perhaps a little bit more depth and insight about what particular um, neuromuscular qualities are needed within, for example, eccentric strength is quite a wide, it's quite a wide spectrum area yeah Yeah. i think by identifying some of these specific eccentric qualities we can help them to target our training strategies so for example in one of my phd studies we looked at counter movement jump force time um, profiles using the force decks and what we found was that of the eccentric qualities during the counter movement jump it was the ones linked in the eccentric deceleration phase which was eccentric peak force and eccentric uh, deceleration RFD, which had the biggest difference between those with high and low deceleration ability. Now, that just helps us get a little bit more insight and helps target some of these training qualities that are needed. So eccentric peak force and eccentric RFD are linked to, uh, are being linked to like an athlete's stretch load tolerance or or stiffness capable, lower limb stiffness capabilities. So those two qualities seem to be really important to target from an eccentric perspective. And they're also under reasonably fast joint angle velocities as well. So when we look at the counter movement jump, the downwards phase around about 200 degrees per second. So they're having to produce those forces in pretty, pretty quick. Um, and that links to deceleration, which you know we're seeing some of the knee joint angular velocities and ankle joint angular velocities of around about 500 degrees per second. So it's really quick eccentric force production capabilities that are needed um, in terms of how you target those. Um, when we look at that eccentric strength, we're now starting to see better, you know, better direction there, I think. But certainly uh, probably the most evidence at the minute in terms of eccentric maximal strength is uh, to target the quadriceps and you know that that's perhaps not not surprising because the quadriceps are absolutely critical in terms of resisting that knee joint flexion or controlling that yielding during the the breaking step and also critical for attenuating the forces when we break we we know that the quadriceps there's some there's some data out there in addition to the ankle, ankle joint will distribute and attenuate about 70% of the forces during deceleration. So before it gets to the hip, the majority of force has already been dampened and, and reduced. So really, really important that obviously eccentric quadricep strength uh, is, is developed uh, as a maximal strength capacity. And um, you could also break that down as well and look at muscles like the rectus femoris as well, which um, from deceleration perspective, because of the trunk position, places quite a quite a big demand on the, the rectus femoris as well. So exercises and activities you see you see people trying to target that at the minute in terms of the eccentric strength of the rec fem. So looking at you know reverse Nordics, um, perhaps wouldn't be me my my number one go to, but you, you you definitely do see people utilizing them activities to target the rec fem where the trunk's in a more upright position. Um, when you're looking at the eccentric strength approaches, um, that obviously links to developing the quadricep strength, and and I think you know you know and, and the rec fem, you know, and, and this is going to depend on on where this athlete is at the, at the, at the part of the season. Uh, but what I've done in terms of trying to think about a, a means to develop solutions. Uh, a lot of these ideas have come on the back of some of the work I did with the FA. Um, I think it was last year now, looking at development of a breaking strength framework uh, to prepare international footballers for competition demands. And uh, I got to the point where I've now started to think about the framework because it's perhaps a hybrid between like a Bonachuk and 
uh, triphasic training approach. Um, it includes three categories, uh, breaking elementary exercises, which are your more traditional overload exercises, breaking developmental exercises, and then breaking performance exercises. Now, when we look at the breaking performance exercises, they're obviously got the highest level of coordinative overload and where we're trying to develop the athlete's ability to break under conditions which are perhaps more highly specific to what they'll face in competition. So then, you know, the decision-making speed, uh, response to other human stimuli. So being able to break under those conditions, whereas at the other end of the spectrum, you're breaking elementary exercises are just really trying to target the known tissue and strength and, and neural qualities needed to needed to tolerate those high breaking forces. So when we're looking at targeting eccentric strength, um, it can run across that whole continuum. Um, down at the front end, if we're looking at the breaking elementary exercises, that could include single joint, you, you know, unilateral eccentric strength approaches. For example, you know, you could have a flywheel mach machine, uh, knee extension machine, to try and develop the eccentric strength of the quads. Um, whereas at the other end of the, the spectrum, we'd be looking at things like small-sided games, manipulating small-sided games, or utilizing unanticipated decelerations to target, you know, really high forces under conditions which are highly specific to what the athlete's going to face in competition. Um, so yeah, it's it's thinking about it on that spectrum. That doesn't mean that you can't integrate those together. So you could you could have you know the breaking elementary exercises combined with the breaking performance exercises, but just under just under lower maybe different volumes or different emphasis. Um, but the, the whole idea of the framework is the the underlying thoughts behind this framework is to increase the player's uh, damage resistance to deceleration loads. I think that's from a from a health perspective and a player performance perspective is 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 really the key the key thing that we're trying to do. Um, you're you're killing me, Damien, because I've got so many notes, it's just turning into an absolute jumble mess. But yeah, no, Rob, I just, no, 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 you're doing great. It's absolutely class. I'm just trying to formulate my um my notes here to, to make it coherent. <clears throat> so just going back to the rapid Rapid eccentrics that you you dive into the detail there, just dumbing it down for 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 probably me more than anyone else. But what would be some examples of uh, of using rapid eccentrics in a uh, what what exercise are we looking at? Yeah, I mean, essentially they would probably fit within the breaking developmental exercises. Okay. So where we're trying to increase some of those qualities that I mentioned, eccentric rate of force development. Uh, eccentric peak force capabilities, but also the ability to to switch off quickly, to unload the center of mass, and to be able to drop down rapidly. So that could include exercises, you know, you know, like um, you know, you know, squat drop, uh, snatch drop. You know, where we're trying to unload the center of mass rapidly, but then arrest that movement at the bottom of, of that of that action. Um, there's been some really nice work looking at fast eccentric squats, which is an eccentric only exercise where we just basically look at trying to, um, we're just looking at emphasizing the eccentric phase and the speed of the of the downwards phase. And um, yeah, that's been shown to develop some of these, these qualities that were talked about, eccentric rate of force development, um, you know, rapid, rapid uh, rates of force development during that eccentric phase. And and then the you know there there are quite a lot of options here, but then you've got your your usual drop jump type activities and activities which, which may accentuate that component. Um, so that may be you know dropping from a relatively low height with an additional load, um, and then um, the concentric phase has a lower level of load than the eccentric phase. So that's so drop, dropping the weights. Yeah, that could be yeah. done with dumbbells. It could be done with elastic resistance, accommodated resistance. Um, you know, hex bar, for example. I've seen quite a few utilizing the hex bar to be able to, you know, implement that approach where it's just loaded on the down and then explode on the upwards phase because that's where 
them accentuate and eccentric loading exercises, you can get a little bit messy when you start using dumbbells and things like that because the athlete becomes more worried about landing on the dumbbells. So I think if you can take that away, that you know that, and just really give them that intent to be able to drop rapidly and not worry about that landing phase after the concentric becomes a bit more powerful. On the eccentric squats, Damien, how would you program for that in terms of loadings versus your concentric 1RMs, for example? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, a couple of studies that have been done on that area. Um, I think the loadings vary from like, depending on uh, across the, the, the periodization of that from about 40% okay. to around about 70%. Um, so reason, reasonably high, moderate to high loads, but um, they, they were they were done um, just during the eccentric phase and fortunate to have something which pneumatic device which 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 uh, takes the, the concentric phase out of the action so it allows them just to focus massively on on that quick eccentric downwards movement mm-hmm. with regards to the, sorry, sorry to interrupt with regards to the like knee angles and uh, joint angles in, in during that would there be any specific considerations for that or would it just be into a into a deep squat position yeah i mean i, I think they were they were looking at like 90 degree so, you know so but the movement then i suppose them longer lengths are quite important when we when we're looking at that but at the same time um just making sure that the athlete can maintain the technique during that that movement as well obviously being really important uh, so they can get that intent and, and safety during the exercise as well. Um, but just ripping that right back, you know, warm-up exercises like um, drop squats, just body body weight oriented. Uh, a lot of people use them, uh, you know, just drop squats, drop lunge, where it's just a quick focus on the downwards phase and then stick. Um, but then coming into those loaded methods being also perhaps quite important. Um, I've also seen it applied in in rear foot elevated type movement, like a, a reflexive eccentric, uh, where where they just quickly drop and hold that movement. Um, and the beauty of that, then you've got that unilateral eccentric emphasis as well. In that breaking, uh, what do you call it? Breaking strength framework that you did with the FA. So that that third phase, you've gone through the elementary, the developmental, the performance. That's very much on field. Te- tactical not tactical technical manipulation of small-sided games to get those um deceleration qualities so maybe smaller pitches um unanticipated change directions yeah it's re- i mean that's really i've got quite interested into that area actually looking at how you can manipulate small-sided games to target some of the deceleration qualities there's quite a lot of studies which have reported axels and decels during small-sided games in terms of the frequency um, and also the um, the the how, how high the decelerations are um, during 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 those constraints. What I'm tr- what I'm finding interesting is you know that the four v four, five v five, kind of like smaller um, smaller sided games really stress the frequency of decelerations. Um, so there's going to be a you know high frequency of velocity changes. Therefore, you you perhaps going to develop the the enduring nature of decelerations. However, I'm 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 finding quite interesting that it may be the larger sided games that needed to develop the mm. maximal deceleration capacities. Where Which would the, make sense? Yeah, where where's the, the option and the ability for the player to, to attain higher velocities, higher movement velocities? So that's quite interesting. Something which perhaps perhaps has important implications for. For managing the um, the micro cycles of particularly in, in in the competition phase, is there any anything that you've come across in terms of constraints in those small sided games which would allow for, like you say, increased frequency or increased intensity of decelerations in both of them examples? Yeah, um, so one one of them is whether you utilize goals or not. Okay. Uh, so it becomes more of a possession format or whether it becomes there's targets to, to attain. So you, you could, with, with the goals, what I think 
from the studies I've looked at, have reported higher decelerations with the with the goals in place um, because obviously there's more linear transitions back. transitions yeah. as well. Transitions, yeah. yeah, whereas the possession uh, perhaps doesn't attain that as much. Um, the other way is just offsetting the player numbers again. You know, so uh, deficiencies in player numbers. So five v four instead of your usual, you know, five v five. So manipulating um, the, the player numbers as well, possibly uh, could be another option there. Um, but yeah, I think that's certainly you know the, some of the best practitioners. I think are already already looking into that and how you can. How you can manipulate those constraints to, to 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 get higher magnitudes of decelerations and higher frequencies. Cool. I'm I'm on to my second page. I'm absolutely rifling through this book with these notes. Thanks, Damien. Um, so, what's next for you in terms of um, in terms of the research and uh, where do you think this this area is going? And who who else is involved? What other kind of people can listeners have a little look for and, and see what work the cool work they're doing in this, this deceleration space yeah there's some i mean there's some really great work going on i think in terms of the the deceleration trying to drive it forward um and and you know that's one of the the key aims of the breaking performance research group is just to collaborate with people around around the world really to try and enhance our understanding of breaking in in high intensity movements um, I've recently been doing some work with the 1080 uh, guys at the 1080, uh, and and they're doing some really interesting work in in that field in terms of how some of the resisted assisted training concepts could be applied to change of direction and deceleration. I think that's quite an interesting area because obviously we know how effective resisted sprint training has been for for the development of acceleration and uh, capabilities. And how that could potentially be used for developing deceleration using assisted and resisted training concepts, um, and also the measurement of deceleration using those devices during change direction as well uh, is is an interesting area. Um, and I think generally just advancing the assessment of deceleration from a from a from a player assessment and a, and a monitoring perspective as well. We don't know a great deal about limb to limb demands. And how that may, you know, how that may change across across a period of time with a player, particularly somebody who may be breaking more with one limb, could really expose them to high risk of injury and, and reduce their performance capabilities. So I think some of the new uh, wearable devices seem really excited in that area, you know, such as um, you know those which can get, particularly those which can get foot to foot ground contact information during the deceleration phase. I think that's another really exciting area as well that, that will develop over the next few years. Um, yeah, and then and, and at the minute, Rob, we haven't got any training interventions really that have been done, you know, and look looking at training interventions and how they can be used to develop deceleration capabilities. You know, for example, you know, a, a period of assisted deceleration work or a period of... Uh, focused eccentric training to develop deceleration capabilities. Um, we we haven't, there's very little work that's been done on interventions in, in deceleration. Um, so I think that's and, another really important area. Absolutely. And any any particular practitioners and researchers that you come across that people can look out for their work in this space? Yeah, you've got, um, I mean, the first person who really started to connect this to change of direction was Tom DeSantos. Of course. So I think Tom, Tom, Tom's work, you know, started by looking at the penultimate foot contact. You know, it's gone gone to the anti-penultimate <laughs> foot contact. Maybe we'll get a few more before that <laughs> next. But particularly looking at the forces, which was really interesting because we have difficulty in capturing the forces um, in in the labs. You know, because you need that, you know, you need additional force plates. So, you know, two force plates prior to the final foot contact allows you to, to look at them too two steps um, unless you're fortunate to have a, a runway of, of force plates like they have in some places and what they've used for acceleration to be able to capture that you know detailed step-by-step uh, force information so Tom DeSantos um, uh, 
the, the guys at multi-directional uh, speed, science and multi-directional speed, that's Tom and uh, Alistair McBurney. Um, he's doing some really good work in change of direction and deceleration. And um, you've got Paul Jones there as well, who's, who's based at Salford, who's done some really excellent, excellent work in, in, in the braking area. Uh, again, applied to change of direction. And um, yeah, there's um, that, the, the main work at the minute has been done in that change of direction with decel. Uh, when you look at the horizontal axle to decel, uh, I've spoken recently to Phil Graham Smith, who's, who's also advocated the use of an horizontal axle to decel test to specifically isolate the deceleration capacity of players. Um, so Phil and our Phil uh, done some excellent work in that area and, and pioneered some of the work in change of direction as well. Uh, and, so a fellow, was, and a fellow Yorkshireman as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. Fellow, fellow to me. Fellow to me. <laughs> but no, thanks, mate. I um I can't believe it's taken this long to get you on, given the the jam-packed episode um that you've just provided. So I really do appreciate it. But last but not least, where can people find you on socials and where can people find the Breaking Performance Research Group? Yeah, I really just at the minute in terms of social media, just just Twitter really. Uh, I don't really hang around on the other <laughs> platforms at the minute. But with Twitter, you can get me on uh, my own personal account, which is at dhmov, and uh, the Breaking Performance Research Group. Uh, we're at Breaking Perform. Um, so yeah, happy for anybody to to reach out about anything I've discussed. Um, and, and obviously, it's it's there's there's lots which I've perhaps not discussed as well today, which I think because it's such a big developing area with 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 a lot of the physical qualities and and strategies that we can use a, a lot of developing area area as well. It's perfect prime for a part two, Damien. When you've got the when you've got the time, but no, thank you very much for. Uh, for that last hour, absolutely incredible. And I'm sure people have tons of notes just as just as much as I have. So thank you very much. No, thank you very much, Rob. It's been a pleasure to come on the, the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks, mate. Speak soon. Thanks, Rob. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 359 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Damien for giving up his time during his break over the summer. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to I Measure You, Black Box Fitness, Kitman Labs, and of course, Satanta College for sponsoring this episode today. As I said at the start, make sure you do dive into some of Damien's work. He's done some incredibly interesting work out there, which you can find on ResearchGate and definitely on his Twitter feed as well. So if you haven't pressed subscribe on your chosen podcast player, make sure you do now. So every Thursday morning UK time, you will have a genius like Damien dropped onto your phone and you can listen and learn from them on the go. So thanks for tuning in again and I will chat to you next week.